Tonight we begin at Matthew chapter 21, and if I'm able, in the hour or so we have in front of us, uh, we want to get through the whole chapter. Uh, So let's begin here at verse 1. Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly, and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. Jesus came as many of the other thousands of pilgrims came to Jerusalem at Passover time. He came from the northern area of Galilee, traveling south, and then coming up from Jericho and the long journey from Jericho, you know, many miles, many kilometers long, going up the hills into Jerusalem. And as he comes towards Jerusalem, he had walked the entire way from Galilee. I mean, this is a long trip. It takes you several hours by car today to travel from Jerusalem to the region of Galilee. And Jesus had walked the entire distance. But now, when he's just a few kilometers outside of Jerusalem, he says, stop, I'm not going to walk into Jerusalem. I'm going to ride upon a donkey. And not just any donkey. But as it says right here, a donkey tied and a colt with her. In other words, you have a donkey and then you have a colt, which is a young donkey. Jesus was going to ride on the colt, the young donkey. And Jesus instructed his disciples here, I want you to go and bring both animals. Now, it is kind of interesting to us in these first six verses, right? Apparently, when Jesus sent his disciples on this errand, go to this particular person, you're going to find a donkey and the colt of the donkey there, untie them both, bring both of them. If they give you any problems, you just say, hey, the master, the Lord has need of them. And they'll say, okay, I I don't know if this was a miracle, right? That somebody under divine inspiration, you know, let them steal the donkeys or something. Most people believe it was a prearranged thing. Jesus had made a previous arrangement, and this was just sort of, oh, on such and such date, some guy's going to come and ask for the use of these donkeys, and he'll just say the Lord had to use them, that'll be, most people think it was just sort of a prearranged thing. But that's not so important. What's important is that Jesus did this in a very deliberate way. He walked almost the entire way from Galilee to Jerusalem, but just a few kilometers short of Jerusalem, he stops and he says, I'm not walking anymore. I'm going to ride in Jerusalem and I'm going to do it for this particular reason so that this prophecy would be fulfilled. The prophecy from the book of Zechariah chapter 9, which says, tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt the foal of a donkey. That's why Jesus didn't ride the donkey. He rode the younger animal, the colt. Because Jesus says right here, I am going to show everybody that I am fulfilling messianic prophecy. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? 
as he comes into Jerusalem for the Passover, he's screaming to the city with an acted out parable. And the acted out parable is saying this, I am your Messiah. Here I am. Take me. Receive me. I am your king. As it says in verse 4, all of this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. The king came, and he came in this lowly manner. Now, you have to admit, some people call this, most people call this whole event that we're going to talk about here in the first six verses, and then the next several verses, most people call this the triumphal entry of Jesus. That's kind of an interesting phrase. Because in the Roman world at that time, there was a practice known as the Roman triumph. And the Roman triumph was this, was after a victorious general of Roman legions had conquered his nations and finished his battles and killed his enemies and taken all their riches and captured all their slaves, he would come back into Rome at the head of a majestic parade, right? Filled with all the slaves and all the armies and all the booty and all the treasure and all the soldiers and all the horses and all the chariots. And that Roman general would come on the biggest, most beautiful white horse you ever saw, right? With his sword and all the pomp and all the circumstance. And everybody would say, this is the majesty and the glory of Rome. And what does Jesus do? Jesus comes riding, not even on a proper donkey, but on a little donkey. Something not much bigger than a big dog. Have you ever seen a really big dog? Not much bigger than a really big dog, Jesus. Now, in the Roman mind, in the secular mind, in a worldly mind, this is ridiculous. This is your triumph? Where are the cities you've conquered? Where are the slaves? Where is the riches? Where is this? But Jesus says, no, 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 no. I am a different kind of king. I come to you, and as the prophecy says, notice how he's fulfilling the prophecy. It says, your king is coming to you. Okay, king, glory, majesty, but your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey. Not on a war horse, not with a drawn sword, not with armies all around him. No, lowly and sitting on a donkey. I like what Adam Clark says about this. He says, this entry into Jerusalem has been termed the triumph of Christ. And he says, it was indeed the triumph of humility over pride and worldly grandeur, of poverty over affluence, and of meekness and gentleness over rage and malice. So I hope the movie's running inside your head right now as Jesus is riding on this this small donkey. Verse 7. And they brought the donkey and the colt. But by the way, why did they bring both of them? They brought both of them because this colt, as the Gospel of Mark explains for us, had never been ridden before. And they probably wanted the mother of that colt there to sort of be some comfort and reassurance. But by the way, isn't this remarkable that Jesus, on this instance, he rode an animal that had never been ridden before, right? He's the master over creation, right? He he rides a, a small donkey that had never been ridden before, 
Verse 7 again. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down the branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen a movie about the life of Jesus, but if you had, I hope that they did this scene well, because this must have been an amazing scene in the life of Jesus. First of all, you have to get in your mind the numbers involved. Tens of thousands of people crowded Jerusalem at Passover time. Jerusalem would be full, it would be crowded, it would be like... It would be like the center of Munich at Oktoberfest, right? People everywhere. The streets are crowded. And there's an excitement because Passover was a very celebratory feast. People were in a celebrating party kind of mood. They were given to enthusiasm at Passover time. And so Jesus wasn't doing this, oh, here's Jesus and about 12 disciples around him. And hey, everybody, here I come. No, there were people lining the streets and there were crowds everywhere. And what did they do? They honored him by laying their clothes on the donkey and the colt spreading their clothes on the road, cutting down branches from the tree, spreading them on the road, a whole thing to honor and to celebrate Jesus and to communicate success and victory. The whole business with the palm branches and the other branches, this reminds them of something that happened just a few hundred years before this in the days of the Maccabees. Do you know who the Maccabees were? These were a family of priestly men. Uh, the, 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 there were several different Maccabee men. But the Maccabees were leaders of the Jewish people in between the Old and the New Testament. You see, in that 400 years in between the Old and the New Testament, one of the things that happened was the Syrians conquered Jerusalem and they conquered Israel. They conquered over this land and they desecrated the temple. And they disgraced the people of God. And they made something terrible. Well, Judas Maccabeus and others like him, they wouldn't stand for it. And so they said, we're going to rise up against them and we're going to drive out the Syrians. We're going to drive out the Greeks and we're going to be our own nation again. And they did it. And their symbol, their celebration at this time was the palm leaf and the palm branch. I want to read to you from 1 Maccabees. Chapter 13, verse 51, it says, On the 23rd day of the second month in the year 171, the Jews entered the citadel with shouts of jubilation, waving of palm branches, the music of harps and cymbals and lyres, and the singing of hymns and canticles, because a great enemy of Israel had been destroyed. So the whole business with those palm branches, it was all reminding them of this great patriotic victory that had been won for the Jewish people a hundred or so years before in which there was a tremendous celebration and a real nationalistic fervor. 
They were hoping that Jesus would be the king who would be the new Maccabean leader, the new man to give them victory over the Gentile impressors, oppressors. So you got the scene in your mind? People are celebrating, they're shouting, they're acclaiming him, they're crying out, as it says right there, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, as it says there in verse 9. Now all this was open messianic adoration of Jesus. They looked to Jesus for salvation. Hosanna means save now, and it was often addressed to kings, such as in 2 Samuel and in 2 Kings. They openly gave Jesus the titles that connected him to to the, the messianic role. They called him the son of David. They called him he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so there they were celebrating, crying out. I'm sure they were chanting. They were singing. It was like a big, happy demonstration that the Messiah is coming into Jerusalem. Now, what do we make of this scene? Well, in the one way, The crowd was glorious. Isn't it wonderful when people are this excited about Jesus? It's wonderful. We look at this and there's something in it that strikes us. There's something in it that says, you know what? It should have been like this every day with Jesus, right? Everywhere he went, he shouldn't have had the religious leaders shaking their fingers in his face. He shouldn't have been confronted by demon-possessed people. He shouldn't have been troubled, but all the way, every day, he should have walked around. It should have been this kind of celebration that Jesus was in their midst. It's a glorious thing when Jesus is celebrated this way. Although we have to say that Jesus' pattern up to this point has been to deliberately discourage this kind of thing. Are we not correct? But what did Jesus so often to say to people after he healed them? Don't you tell anybody. Keep it quiet. Because Jesus did everything he could to keep down this kind of messianic celebration until this very day. And on this very day, it's as if he said, let it happen. Let it happen in full measure. And there's just something so right about it that we love about this occasion. By the way, I also think that one of the reasons why Jesus was so excited about letting it happen on this day is that this may have been the very day prophesied in the book of Daniel that the Messiah would return to Jerusalem. It's complicated. But in Daniel chapter 9, there's a very elaborate prophecy of the 70 weeks of Daniel. And he gives a time frame in which the Messiah will be presented to Israel as their king. And the groundbreaking research of a man named Sir Robert Anderson, by the way, I'll just let you know that his research is not without controversy. There are some people who say, well, no, Robert Anderson's figures are incorrect and we don't regard his chronology. But, but I've looked at those figures and as much as I can tell, although I haven't researched it all that deeply, but as much as I can tell, they look solid and reliable. So Robert Anderson points out that exactly the number of days prophesied in the book of Daniel from the time that a decree went forth to rebuild Jerusalem to the time that it happened, that it actually happened, that Jesus came in, it was exactly the period of time prophesied by Daniel. And that's why it being so precise to the very day, and I should let you know, Sir Robert Anderson's calculations go down to the very day that Jesus knew it was on this day that I must be presented as Messiah the King to Israel. And so here they have. They have this amazing celebration. And on the one hand, we say it's glorious. 
On the other hand, we say it's ridiculous. Jesus, you're coming into Jerusalem as a king, riding a little donkey? Where are your armies? Where are your swords? Where, where are your victories in battle? Where is the blood that you've shed to grasp for power the way that the kings of this earth do? Can you imagine what Pilate would have said if he had heard about this? By the way, it's entirely reasonable to think that Pilate did hear about this. Can you imagine the report that comes into Pilate? Pontius Pilate, there's just been a demonstration. This man came into the city of Jerusalem and people were acclaiming him as a king. And Pilate would want to know, well, how many soldiers does he have? Um, none. Pilate said, who cares then? Those crazy Jewish people, if they want to uh, celebrate a man riding an animal a little bit bigger than a big dog, and everybody's, you know, celebrating, and that he doesn't have any swords, he doesn't have any armies, he doesn't have any political power, and yet they celebrate him. So on the one hand, it's glorious. On the other hand, it's ridiculous. What I want you to notice is it made a difference. Verse 10, when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved. Jesus was not afraid of the chief priests. He was not afraid of the Pharisees. He went right into Jerusalem. By the way, should not I remind you that just a few verses back in uh, Matthew chapter 20, Jesus made it very clear that when he went to Jerusalem, he would be betrayed, he would be arrested, he would be mocked, he would be scourged, and he would be crucified. Now, wouldn't you be a little bit hesitant to get into Jerusalem then? He goes, no, not only am I going into Jerusalem, I'm going to go into Jerusalem as publicly as possible. Without being arrogant, Jesus' attitude is, I will not back away from what my Father has for me. And the soul of all the city was troubled. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us something here that Luke does. Luke tells us that before he entered the city, he looked over it and he wept because he knew the judgment that would come upon the Jerusalem that rejected him. But what I find interesting about this is that moment of weeping and sorrow, Jesus kept to himself. The the celebration, he included everybody into it. I like what Spurgeon said about this. He said, our Lord loves his people to be glad. His tears he kept to himself as he wept over Jerusalem, but the gladness he scattered all around so that even the boys and girls in the streets of Jerusalem made the temple courts to ring with their merry feet and gladsome songs. So he comes into Jerusalem, and what are the people saying as he comes in? Look at verse 11. They're saying, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Do you notice what they say? Well, who is this guy? Who is this guy? Everybody's saying he's the king or Hosanna or this or that. Who is he? And, and well, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth. Now, right there, that was a way to sort of lower Jesus in the estimation of people, right? Who would be impressed from a, by a prophet from Nazareth? And the answer is nobody. Nobody would be impressed by a prophet from Nazareth. But this is how they regarded him. They didn't know that he had been born in Bethlehem. They didn't know that he had been to Jerusalem many times. They didn't know other things about him, but they knew that he came from Nazareth. Verse 12. 
Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Now it's very interesting to notice that in the Gospel of John, it mentions an occasion when Jesus cleansed the temple, when he drove out merchants and money changers from the temple courts, and that he did it at the beginning of his ministry. Matthew, Mark, and Luke mention this uh, driving out of the money changers and the merchants in the temple that happening at the end of his earthly ministry. And some people think that these are really one event, but I don't think so. There's good reason to believe that Jesus did this twice. As a matter of fact, the differences in the event described by John and the event described by the other gospel writers are different enough to make us think that there was one at the beginning of his ministry and now this one towards the end of his ministry. But the purpose between the two of them were the same. He drove out the merchants who, in cooperation with the priests, were cheating visitors to Jerusalem by forcing them to purchase approved sacrificial animals and currencies at high prices. Okay, you come from Galilee and you come to make a sacrifice at the temple. Well, you probably don't want to bring your animal with you all the way from Galilee or all the way from any place where you're coming to the temple, right? For two reasons. First of all, it's just a big hassle to bring the the animal, whatever it is, with you. But secondly, that animal has to pass inspection, right? And what if you bring that animal with you all the way from home, and then when you show it to the priest, the priest looks and he goes, no, this, this isn't worthy to be sacrificed. You can't do this. Then what do you do? Then you're in trouble. So what would people do? They would just bring money, and at the temple, they would buy approved sacrificial animals. You know, they would have a good kosher symbol or something like that on it, stamp on it. It's approved sacrificial animal. That's what I want you to notice is those approved sacrificial animals were grossly high in price. In other words, a pair of doves could cost as little as, oh, let's say, um, well, I'll just convert it into terms we can understand. I'll convert some currencies here. Uh, According to William Barclay, he said a pair of doves could cost as little as four euros outside the temple. Inside the temple, as much as 75 euros. Right? More than, or almost as much as 20 times the going price. Now, there were also money changers because everybody was required to make a financial contribution to the temple, but you couldn't make the financial contribution to the temple with Roman coins. So you had to exchange Roman coins for specially approved temple coins, and the exchange rate was fixed. Now, I want you to notice this. It wasn't all about the merchants cheating their customers, though. Because I want you to notice very much what it says in verse 12, that he drove out all those who bought and sold. Right? It wasn't just the sellers that Jesus drove out. He sold. Out, he drove out the buyers as well. You see, it wasn't only that they were being cheated, although that was bad. 
But Jesus just thought that the whole thing of exchange and merchandising at the temple courts had gone so far that it had made it more like a marketplace than a place to meet God. And what's interesting is that this business of uh, selling animals, it was necessary. It was helpful. This business of exchanging money, necessary, helpful. It wasn't the things in themselves that Jesus probably uh, disagreed with. It was the way it was being done, making it into a loud, noisy marketplace. And this was happening in the court of the Gentiles. Do you understand a little bit of the structure of the temple area in Jerusalem? You know, if you were to go and visit Jerusalem today, and whenever I go to Jerusalem, if I can, one of my favorite places to go is up on the Temple Mount. It's just wonderful up there. And one of the things that's striking about the Temple Mount is even though today there's no temple up there, there, there there's an uh, Islamic mosque, and then there's the Islamic shrine, the, the Dome of the Rock, and there's other things on there. By the way, if I could just say this. I know this is going on tape and all that, but I'll just say it anyway. The way that the Muslims keep the Temple Mount is a disgrace. When you go to the Temple Mount and just walk around, you see heaping piles of rubbish. Of rubbish on the Temple Mount which they claim is so holy and sacred and this and that, I cannot figure out for the life of me why they don't take better care of something that they say is so important to them. Anyway, that's a little thing I probably shouldn't have said. But anyway, the thing that strikes me about the Temple Mount when you go up there and visit is how big it is. It's a big piece of real estate. And you realize that the actual building of the temple, the, the structure, the building of the temple, only took up a small part of the actual temple mount. You see, surrounding the temple building, you had an area that was fenced off or, or walled off, and that was just for the priests. And then you had another area out around that that was walled off, and that was just for Jewish men. And then you had another area walled off that was just for Jewish men and women. And then you had beyond all that the much larger court of the Gentiles. You see, if you were a Gentile, you couldn't go into the court of the women. If you were a woman, you couldn't go into the court of the men. If you were a man, you couldn't go into the court of the priests unless you were a priest. Now, all these merchants and money changers were set up in the court of the Gentiles. This was the only place that a Gentile who wanted to seek God could come and pray. Could, could he go into the court of the women? No. As a matter of fact, there were strict signs onto the entrance into the court of the women saying that if you're a Gentile, you come in here and, and your life is in your own hands. You can be killed for coming in here. And they have those signs preserved. They, they know what those signs look like. And they would have signs, stay out if you're not this, stay out if you're not that. The Gentile could only come into these outer courts. That was the only place where he could come up to the temple and pray to the God of Israel. The only place where it was permitted for him. And what was it made into? It was made into a marketplace and a place for money changing. 
a loud, raucous market. And that's why Jesus was disgusted with it. And that's why he quotes this passage where he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Now, I got to say, the Gospel of Mark contains a more complete quotation of Jesus' reference to Isaiah chapter 56 here. It says this, is it not written, my house should be called a house of prayer for all nations. And that's what Jesus was really getting at. This outer court, this is the only place where all nations can come together and pray, but they can't pray because the business of religion is making so much noise and so much furor that they can't pray. Now, let me just say this. As I said before, the business of selling sacrificial animals, the business of exchanging money, it was good and necessary. It was just being done so crassly, so wrongly that it was a disgrace to God. And that's why Jesus drove them out. Actually, you could say that what Jesus did here was more important as an acted out parable, more than for what it accomplished in itself. You know, there's no indication that any lasting reform was achieved. No doubt that the tables were back for the rest of the week and business went on as usual, right? Jesus went up to the temple courts after that and he didn't drive them out all over again. No, but Jesus wanted to say something. He said, you guys are transforming the only place where the Gentiles can pray into a marketplace and I won't stand for it. And then after Jesus did this, by the way, in the movie that runs in your mind, isn't that an exciting scene? When Jesus is turning over tables and driving people out with a whip of cords that he's made and saying, you're not going to turn this house of my father into a den of thieves. Get out of here. And everybody runs from the great authority of Jesus. No, I take that back. Not everybody runs from the great authority of Jesus because look at verse 14. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Isn't that beautiful? If I could put it so strong, you get the bad guys out and then the needy people can come in and get some ministry, right? You see, the bold action of Jesus to drive out the merchants and the money changers from the temple courts, it did not discourage the truly needy people from coming to him. None of the needy people said, oh, now he's all mad. Now we don't want to come to him. No, no, no. They said, no, we'll come. By the way, let me say this as well. The blind and the lame were restricted to the court of the Gentiles. They couldn't get any closer to the temple, and they could not go to the altar to offer sacrifice. So after purging the court of the Gentiles, of the merchants and the robbers, then Jesus ministered to all the outcast people who congregated there. And what did he do? He healed them. He cared for them. He healed them. Verse 15, but when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple saying, Hosanna to the son of David. By the way, just stop right there. Isn't it beautiful to think that, that as Jesus comes into the temple courts, that there's children running around. When children see Jesus, they start crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. I mean, they had heard the commotion when Jesus came into the tribal entry and they carried on some of that praise and some of that celebratory spirit as they came and they saw Jesus walking around on the temple mount. And it's a beautiful thing. You just think of a little group of kids running by and as they see Jesus, they yell out, Hosanna to the son of David. And Jesus must have smiled so big to have such words from a child 
child. But what did it do? It drove the religious leaders crazy. Because it says, I'll start again at verse 15. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read? By the way, I love it when Jesus talks like that to the scribes and Pharisees. Should we not remind ourselves that these were men who prided themselves on being experts of the law? And he said, yeah, don't you guys know that scripture that says, out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise. He's quoting from Psalm 8 right there. It says, then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. They were indignant Their response, I should say the religious leader's response to the wonderful things that Jesus did was to be angry about it all. And they want to know from Jesus, Jesus, do you hear what these little children are saying about you? What did Jesus say? Jesus said, oh yeah, I heard it. And it was like perfected praise in the ears of God. There's something wonderful about a child's relationship with God, about a child's recognition of who Jesus is. I I like this one thing that I heard. I I heard about Martin Luther and how he was greatly encouraged when he found out that children were meeting together to pray for him and for his work. This is what he said. He said, God will hear them. The devil himself cannot defeat us now that the children begin to pray. Isn't that beautiful? And Jesus accepted this praise, this worship, this honoring. And after it all, after he had thrown it back into the face of the religious leaders, it says there in verse 17, he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. Now, why didn't Jesus sleep in Jerusalem? Well, for a couple reasons. First of all, as I said Thousands upon thousands of people crowded into Jerusalem at Passover time, and it was hard to find a place to stay. So Jesus stayed just right outside the city of of, uh, Jerusalem in the village of Bethany, which, by the way, where he had a couple friends, right, by the name of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. So that's where he stayed. But he may have also had a second concern for staying outside the city. Um, he, He didn't want anybody to think that he was trying to take over the city as a king or leader of a rebellion. So he goes out of the city each night and he comes back in. Verse 18. Now in the morning, as he returned to the city, he was hungry. Maybe I should stop right there. I don't want to make a big deal about this. But some people wonder why, if he's staying at the home of Martha and Mary, by the way, do you think he had some good hospitality at the house of Martha and Mary? I think so. Then why did he leave the house hungry? Right? You would think, well, that's not very hospitable of Mary and Martha. You have somebody stay over at your home. Don't you serve them breakfast in the morning? Don't you make sure that their needs are taken care of before they leave? How could they leave? How could they not serve Jesus breakfast in the morning? And I like one thing. Spurgeon speculated that it was because he woke early to have time with his heavenly father and he took no time to eat. So anyway, he's coming into the city, verse 18. In the morning, as he returned to the city, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves and said to it, let no fruit grow on you ever again. Immediately, the fig tree withered away. 
Now, in a dramatic way here, Jesus performed one of his few destructive miracles. His curse made the fig tree to wither away. He looked at this fig tree and he noticed two things. He noticed that it had leaves, but it had no fruit. That's kind of interesting. The Gospel of Mark, when it describes the situation, it makes it clear to us that it was not the time for figs to bear. I said, well, Jesus, how unfair can you get? Here's a tree that doesn't have fruit, but it's not the season for bearing fruit, and yet you get all in a, you know, snit about it, and you're cursing fig trees and making them die. Jesus, you're not very ecologically sensitive or something like that. No, 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 let me explain this. You have to understand how fig trees, and especially these fig trees that grew in that part of the world at this time, is that the fruit and the leaves appeared together. In other words, it wasn't like one of those trees that grows leaves first, and then sometime after the leaves come, the fruit comes. No, no, no. These fig trees, the fruit and the leaves come together. So if you have leaves but no fruit, you could say that's false advertising. It's putting forth an image that you have fruit, right? I should have fruit. I have leaves. But you have no fruit. All you have is leaves. You're just show. And in this acted-out parable, Jesus warned of coming judgment upon an unfruitful Israel. It was a way for God to show his disapproval of people who are all leaves but no fruit. You know, uh, what makes a tree look good? Leaves make a tree look good, right? Oh, there's the beautiful leaves on the tree. It looks like such a healthy, good tree. But you walk up to him, there's no fruit. Well, there are people who in their lives, there's nice leaves spiritually, right? Things look good spiritually, but there's no fruit in their life. And that's what Jesus was speaking against. Verse 20. By the way, I should just say again, just remind you, this is another acted out parable. I would say that the triumphal entry was an acted out parable, right? Jesus is saying through his actions, I am your Messiah, the King coming to Israel. The, the, the cleansing of the temple courts, that was an acted out parable. Jesus is saying, I'm the Messiah here to claim the temple courts and how to clean it from corruption. And then now this, the cursing of the fig tree, an acted out parable where Jesus shows Listen, I am going to judge that which has the image of spiritual life, but not the reality of it. Verse 20. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither away so soon? Which, by the way, you and I probably would have said the same thing. We probably wouldn't have been thinking so spiritual. We'd have think, Oh, my heavens, Jesus said die to that fig tree, and it died right before our eyes. How did you do this? So Jesus answered and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. Jesus explained that this miracle was really the result of a prayer made in faith. Now, I find it interesting because we didn't notice Jesus praying right there, did we? We didn't notice Jesus getting down on his knees, folding his hands in that right posture of prayer, and praying, Oh God, right now I pray that you would curse this fig tree. It didn't look like Jesus was praying, but he was, right? 
He was explaining to them, what you saw me do in the fig tree was the outgrowth of my prayer life and was a prayer made at the moment to God that God answered. And he then encouraged his marveling disciples to also have that kind of faith, trusting that God would hear them also. And he gave them this amazing promise in verse 22, that whatever things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. Can I note something here? This promise of God's answer to prayer of faith was made to the disciples, not to the multitude. This is a promise to those people who are following Jesus, right? You're following Jesus. And as far as you are following in his footsteps, you ask in prayer believing and you will receive them. And listen, sometimes we ask for things that aren't good for us, right? God knows how to overrule those things. He'll give us what's best. But Jesus is saying this to give us boldness and confidence in prayer, that we would have a promise from the scriptures to lean upon and believe that God wants to answer our prayers. Now, where does Jesus go? Walks by the fig tree, comes up to Jerusalem, and he comes right back to the temple courts. I find this fascinating. He comes right back to the temple courts where just the day before he drove out the money changers and the merchants. He walks right back up to the temple courts where the religious leaders confronted him. He goes up there and this is what he says, verse 23. Now when he came into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? Let me stop right there. I don't think that was a bad question. Look, here's a guy who comes into Jerusalem saying, receive me as your king, who goes up to the temple courts and and is uh, driving out the money changers and the merchants, and who is cursing fig trees on his way into Jerusalem. I think it's fair enough for the religious leaders. Hey, sir, by what authority are you doing this? It's not an unfair question. Okay, so they asked, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? But Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where was it from? From heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, then we fear the multitude, for all count John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus and said, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. The religious leaders raised the question of Jesus' authority. And he answered with a question that that brought into question their ability to judge such an issue. So he says, tell me about the baptism of John. Where was it from? Was it from heaven or was it from men? And I want you to notice what the response of the scribes and the Pharisees were, the religious leaders, or it says actually in verse 23, the chief priests and the elders. What did they say? They said, we do not know. Now, first of all, it was a lie. They knew. Do you see how the the wheels are running inside their head? 
well, listen, we, we, we can't say it's from heaven because we know that John said that Jesus was the Messiah. So if we say heaven, we can't say that. Well, we can't say from men because if we say from men, then, then the people will reject us because everybody counts John as a prophet. So we'll just say we don't know. It was such a lie. It was such a cynical answer. It was their way of saying, no, Jesus, we don't want to deal with this. We don't want to deal with who John was and what his message was and who you really are. We're just interested in trapping you. His question was very profound. If the religious authorities answered Jesus's question, they would have answered their own. What was their question? By what authority? Well, if they answered the question correctly, John the Baptist, he was from heaven. He, his, his work, his ministry, his message was from heaven. Therefore, Jesus has the authority of God as Father. Okay, question answered. But because they couldn't deal with the question honestly, Jesus said, I will not deal with you. They were cowards. They were hypocrites. And so now Jesus is going to speak to them very directly in two parables, starting at verse 28. But what do you think? And you know, when Jesus starts this parable, as I say often, in the movie that runs in my head, I don't know if he's looking at these religious leaders or if he's looking at the crowd that came to hear him teach. Maybe both. Maybe he's making eye contact all around because I know he wanted both the crowd and these religious leaders to hear this. But what do you think? Verse 28. A man had two sons and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. And he answered and said, I will not. But afterward he regretted it and went. Then he came to the second and said, Likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said to him, the first. Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, the tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. What a parable Jesus gives here. He's speaking both to the crowd and to the religious leaders. And he said, let me tell you about two sons. There were two sons, and he said, listen, I want you to go work today in my vineyard, which was a very reasonable request, right? They should have done it. He spoke to each son individually. He appealed to them as sons, and he told them, listen, it's work. It's the family work, and I want you to do this work today. And he said, do this work because it's my vineyard. And the first son said, no, Father, I won't do it. But then afterwards, he says, man, what am I doing? This is my dad's vineyard. One day I'll inherit it. It's not right for me to treat my dad this way. I need to work. I need to do something good with my time anyway. I'll go out and work in the vineyard, even though he told his father that he wouldn't. The second son? Did you notice what he says? Verse 30, he answered and said, I go, sir. Right? Very proper, very official. But what does he do? He goes back into the house and he starts playing Xbox 360 or whatever it is they played back then in those days. Now listen, he didn't go. Which of the sons was justified 
It was the first. The point of this parable is clear. What matters is living for God, not saying the right words. The religious leaders were good at talking righteous talk, but their stubbornly unrepentant hearts showed that repentant sinners, even if they were tax collectors and harlots, they would enter the kingdom of heaven before them. And this must have been a very shocking statement, not only to the religious leaders. Could you imagine going up to the religious leaders today and looking at them and saying, you know what? Terrorists and prostitutes who repent are going to go to heaven before you do. Whoa! It would have been shocking for the religious leaders to hear that. And Jesus explained why, though. Verse 32, when you saw it, when you saw the work from John the Baptist, you did not afterward relent and believe him. These proud religionists should have repented all the more when they saw notorious sinners repenting, but they did not. They should have said, listen, this is such a move of God. It's affecting the tax collectors. It's affecting the prostitutes. We need to come to God also, but they did not do it. Now, if that wasn't enough, does Jesus give a stronger parable now in verse 33? You better believe he does. Look at this one. Hear another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it. He dug a wine press and built a tower, and he leased it to a vine dresser and went into a far country. Now then, vintage time drew near. He sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? They said to him, now this is the religious leaders replying. They said to him, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. There's a couple things i got to let you know before we think about this parable. Number one, Jesus is drawing on an image from the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 32, Psalm chapter 80, Jeremiah chapter 2, and especially Isaiah chapter 5, all picture Israel as the Lord's vineyard. Okay? Now, God entrusted his vineyard to the religious leaders, right? The religious leaders were the guys who were supposed to take care of his vineyard. That's the picture. Secondly, what you need to know is that Jesus was describing a totally normal arrangement in those days. It was common for a man to buy land, make all these investments in it. You know, as Jesus described the investments, he says uh, he set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, built a tower. He made all these improvements, and then he rented it out to people who would work the land, 
And they would pay him. Sometimes the arrangement was they would pay him money. Sometimes the arrangement was he would, they would pay him a fixed amount of the produce. Sometimes the arrangement was they would pay him a percentage of the produce. But he expected to be paid, right? Because he made all the investments. It was his land. So when it comes time for him to collect what's due to him, how is he treated? Well, his messengers, the servants that he sent, they're abused. They're killed. They're murdered. Now, by the way, this parable, like many of the parables, takes a normal situation and exaggerates it. Right? In real life, no landowner would keep sending his servants to collect the rent if the servants are getting murdered. Right? But this landowner does. Again, taking a real situation and exaggerating it. He sends one servant, two servants, many servants. He sends many servants, and finally, when they've killed all of his messengers, who we would regard as the prophets of Israel, then he says, I'll send them my son. And you look at the spiritual insanity of the men who ran the vineyard. What did they say? They said, hey, if we kill the son, then we'll get the vineyard. Now, can I just say, is that insane? Can anybody think that that would actually work? That Can anybody think that the landowner would say, oh, they killed my son. Okay, I'll give them the farm. Can anybody think that? You would have to be insane to make such a calculation. And might I say that the rejection that the leaders of Israel had of Jesus, their Messiah, was insane. And when Jesus told this story, and in the final verses there, verses 40 and 41, when Jesus says, what is the owner of the vineyard going to do to those wicked vine dressers? The, the men themselves, his religious enemies answered it themselves. They said, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. Oh, listen, this is what God expects of men who are in spiritual leadership. He expects them to raise up from the work of God fruit unto the Lord. Not just benefit unto themselves, but fruit unto the Lord. And if they don't produce fruit unto the Lord, what does God say he'll do? He will take them out of their vineyard. He will give it to other people who will bring forth fruit to the Lord. And he'll lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. Now, as soon as the religious leaders said that, again, the way I picture it in my mind, don't you think a light turned on in their own minds? Oh, my heavens, we just said that against ourselves. The conviction of the Holy Spirit is coming in upon their hearts. And that's why Jesus presses the point home right here in verse 42, where it says, Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you that the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to power. Now when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parable, they perceived that he was speaking of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. Again, 
Jesus just sort of driving them crazy again in verse 42 with that great line, don't you guys read your Bibles? Have you never read in the scriptures? He says, he says this to chief priests, to religious leaders. Hey guys, let me give you a little Bible study. The Bible says that the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. I want you to notice this, that the whole mentality of these chief priests and scribes who were questioning Jesus was based on this way of thinking. They were thinking, well, listen, this guy's not the Messiah until we say he's the Messiah. If he doesn't get our stamp of approval, then he's no Messiah. He better prove something to us if he's going to be the Messiah. And Jesus said, don't you guys read your Bible. The Bible says that the Messiah would be rejected by the kind of men you are. And that the stone which the builders, the leaders, right? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. You guys think that I'm not the Messiah unless I'm approved by you. I tell you I'm not the Messiah unless I'm rejected by you. What a powerful thing for Jesus to say. And it was all in fulfillment of that great messianic psalm, Psalm 118, and that rejected cornerstone would become the chief cornerstone. It's just another way of saying that, listen, Jesus was not on trial. These men were on trial. You know, that's the way they wanted it to be, right? Jesus, we are your judges And we are going to evaluate whether or not you're a prophet, whether or not you're the Messiah, whether or not you're fit to teach in our temple courts. We are your judges. And Jesus says back to them, no, no, you're not my judges. I am your judge. If you fall upon me in humility, you'll be broken, which is a good thing, broken in a good way. I fall upon you, you will be crushed to powder in judgment. You know, you can think of a man, a simple man, maybe a man kind of like me who doesn't have a great appreciation or understanding of the fine arts. Look, I like a painting when I look at it or this or that, but I'm no great artiste or man with great artistic sensibilities. But when I look at a painting by a great master, I could go and say, well, I don't like that. But listen, if it's a work by a great master, my liking it or don't liking it doesn't say much about master. It says a lot about me, right? And how much I understand. Well, that Leonardo da Vinci, I don't think he could paint very good. That Michelangelo, I don't know about him. Listen, you're not saying anything about Michelangelo. You're saying something about yourself. Same thing with Jesus. These men weren't evaluating Jesus He was evaluating them. And did you see what he said in verse 43? He said, Therefore, I say to you that the kingdom of God will be taken from you and be given to a nation bearing fruits of it. Do you understand what a huge statement that was? These men, these chief priests, these leaders of Israel, they fancied themselves as the people being the leaders of God's community on earth. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has his community on earth, and we are the leaders of it. And you know what Jesus was telling them? He goes, no longer. 
God is going to take that leadership away from you and he's going to give it to others. And who did he give it to? He gave it to the apostles and he gave it to their descendants. I find it very interesting the phrasing that Jesus uses here in verse 43. He says, it will be taken to you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. The, the specific wording of it in the ancient Greek and in particular the grammar, Jesus isn't saying he'll give it to the Gentiles. He isn't saying that. He's saying he'll give it to a people group separate from you. And you know what he had in mind? I'm convinced that Jesus didn't have Jews in mind. He didn't have Gentiles in mind. He had in mind the church, which is both Jews and Gentiles joined together into one new body. And Jesus says, this will be the community of God's people, of the people of Abraham, of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob on this earth. That's heavy. And this very transition happened, didn't it? You think of what a tremendously spiritually significant thing that was. That on the earth, God has a community of his people. And God transferred the leadership from those leaders of Israel to the leaders of the church, which would be made up of both Jew and Gentile. Well, what was their response when Jesus said something? Did they repent? Did they say, even though in verse 45, notice, they perceived that he was speaking of them. What would tell them that he was speaking of them except their own guilty consciences? And yet they did not repent. They did not turn. Instead, verse 46, they sought to lay hands on him, but they saw how the crowds loved it. They said, no. We can't do it. We can't lay hands on men when he's in the midst of these adoring crowds. It'll start a riot against us. Now, it's not that they were opposed to riots. In a few days, these very same religious leaders will seek to instigate a riot against Jesus. No, they're opposed to riots against them. And they will plot for a way to arrest Jesus and take him away in secret using one of Jesus' own disciples to betray him. But that's for later chapters. Next time when we get together, Jesus is going to continue this theme of confronting the religious leaders. I think this is something serious for us to consider. Here Jesus comes in glory to Jerusalem. The common people receive him gladly. The religious leaders reject and resist him. It's very easy for me, maybe it's easy for you, but it's very easy for me to say, oh yes, I would be one of the common people receiving Jesus and not one of the religious leaders rejecting him. Look, I don't know about you, but I don't want to be too quick to say that. I, I want to look for ways where my own mind, my own prejudice, my own thinking, my own self-will has hardened me against what the will of the Lord actually is. And I want to really be one of those people who would welcome Jesus with hosannas and blessed be he who comes in the name of the Lord and not just assume I am because they're the good guys. Do you read the Bible sometimes that way? I do. You read the Bible and there's good guys and they're bad guys. And I know I'm one of the good guys. Okay, isn't that nice? Listen, I want to read this and say, Lord, 
There may be more of the bad guy in me than I want to admit. Help me, God. Help me to follow you in spirit and in truth. Lord, when I perceive that you are speaking of me, let me respond to you in repentance, not hardness. Father, that is our prayer tonight. You know, Lord, we don't want to fall into the trap of just automatically thinking that we're one of the good guys in the story. But Lord, we trust you and we trust the power of your spirit. And when we perceive that you are speaking of us, give us the courage to repent, to make our hearts right with you, and thereby to bring you a lot of glory and just to love you all the more with our lives. We want to do it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.